Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Genesis 6 through 11 and Moses chapter 8. So let's take just a second and revisit uh, the Book of Moses from a 30,000-foot overview just so that we're all oriented the same. Remember that Moses chapters 1 through 8 are the equivalents of the Joseph Smith translation for Genesis chapters 1 through chapter 6, verse 13. So remember, way back at the beginning of this year, we covered Moses chapter 1, which doesn't appear in the Genesis account, and then we got a whole bunch of additional information concerning Enoch in chapter 6 and 7 of Moses that also don't appear in the book of Genesis. And so what you're going to find as we introduce Noah today in chapter 8, it's going to cut off at the very end of Moses 8 is the equivalent of what you're going to get in Genesis chapter 6 verse 13. So if you, want to, if you want that to be a little clearer to you in the future, you could just make a note of this in your Pearl of Great Price as well as turn to your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 6 verse 13, you could draw a physical line there and then draw a little arrow up that says JST, Moses, or something to show this is the cutoff. Now, moving forward, you'll notice that you then get some pretty sizable Joseph Smith translation changes that don't appear in your footnote directly, it'll just point you back to the appendix in the very back of your Bible, right before the maps, uh, so that's where you're going to get the first insertions in the appendix of the Bible of those JST editions, because previous to that we didn't need to use them there because we have the Book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price, which represents the, the entirety of the Joseph Smith translation up to that point. So, with that foundation, let's jump into chapter 8 of Moses. We'll, we'll work our way all the way through Moses 8, and then we'll jump over into the Genesis account uh, in chapter 6. So, what you get here is this beginning of, of chapter 8 is the genealogy. So it gives us from Enoch to Methuselah to Lamech and then to Noah. And then from Noah, it gives you his son's names in verse 12, Japheth, or Japheth, and Shem, and Ham. And so you've got this, this genealogy chart taking you clear back to Enoch from Noah. The key to me is in verse 13, and Noah and his sons hearkened unto the Lord and gave heed, and they were called the sons of God. Isn't that interesting that all of us are children of God, but the qualifier in the scriptures to become the sons and daughters of God, there seems to be this, this qualifying factor of we actually give heed to, we hearken to, we follow, we trust God, then we become sons of God. Why don't the scriptures just say, well, we're already all sons of God, why are they making this distinction? I like that. I like the fact that we're all children of, of our heavenly parents, but we become even more qualified as children of God 
when we hearken, when we obey, when we follow. I could add to this, we have the phrase that Jesus is the beloved son. Well, we're all loved of our heavenly parents. It's not like Jesus is the only one of the millions and billions of spirit children that our heavenly uh, parents have created that they only love him. And it's interesting, the word beloved literally means the 100% fully loved. And it's not that they don't fully love all of us, but that beloved is a designation that he fully heeded the Lord. And so he is fully beloved. Now, we are loved by God, and as we take action and show that we are fully in line with God's will, we also become beloved. This might be another way of thinking about That's this. That's great. It's also, I think, a good reminder to us that what the Lord is, is seeking to do is help us build multi-generational faith wherever possible. We can't take away agency. We can't force anyone to, to do the, the things that God has asked us to do, but it's that focus on trying to build that, that faith in such a way that it will literally lead to intergenerational covenant path loyalty to God. It's, it's beautifully laid out here on the page. Now, notice how it shifts. So, Noah's sons have children, and their children, so these are Noah's grandchildren, begin to intermarry with the, the people of the world, and verse 16, Noah prophesied and taught the things of God even as it was in the beginning. So, he's not, he's not sitting back watching bad things happen saying, wow, this is terrible. He's proactively trying to prophesy and teach and cry repentance. And he's not teaching a new gospel even as it was from the beginning. He's teaching the very things that Adam would have known, the very things that we have in the Restoration. To me, I think that even Alma would say, gosh, I completely recognize this message. It's the simple truths of the gospel that save us. It's not the wild speculations that might make our ears scratch at the back of some Sunday school class, but it's being focused on the saving doctrines that get, get us focused on that Jesus is our Savior and the only way that we can be saved is through him and we have to hearken to him. Beautiful. Now look at verse 17. And the Lord said unto Noah, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he shall know that all flesh shall die, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years, and if men do not repent, I will send in the floods upon them. That whole idea is the overlay for, for this, this whole flood narrative. This flood story is God isn't trying to destroy all of his children. It's God's not getting great joy out of destruction. He's you'll notice if you take him literally at his word here in verse 17, God is pleading with these people through his prophet Noah for 120 years, pleading with them to repent and to to follow the this gospel that had been given to Adam and then to Enoch and subsequently now on down the line to Noah, and yet the people are choosing not to repent, hence the flood. Now, that to me is the essence of today's lesson, is do I really think that I have everything I need and I've got everything in control and I don't need God? I don't need to know what he wants for me or what he's asking me to do. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I want God to know what I want him to do, 
and what I demand that he does, and if he doesn't do it, then I'm going to be I'm going to be angry and upset and offended at him. It's the that whole idea of creating a god after my own my own image or my own likeness or I'm creating a god even if I'm not fashioning an idol for him. I'm still doing that in this context of saying I don't want to learn of God. I want God to learn of me. I don't want to obey God. I want God to obey me. I want to make my demands and have them met. So as we move forward in today's lesson, there are a lot of things that we could get focused on that might be tangential or that might be really important to some people, but we're going to stay laser-focused on seeking to put God first in our lives, let God prevail, and figure out what he wants us to do and try to do that to the best of our ability in meekness and humility. So it's interesting, if we look carefully both at Moses 8 and Genesis 6, we actually get some hints around some of the messages God wants us to walk away with from the story. Now, we've talked in past lessons that the name is the lesson. So we should investigate for a minute the meaning of the word Noah. So if you could write on the board these words, rest and comfort. Let's take a look at what we get in Moses chapter 8, verse 9. Now when Noah is born, he gets this name, he's called Noah. Why? This son shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the earth which the Lord hath cursed. So there's something inherent in the name Noah, which actually his name literally means rest or comfort, is that comfort comes from listening to God's chosen servants and being prepared against the floods of life that will inevitably happen to everybody. All of us suffer in some way. And where does comfort come from? It comes from Jesus. Now let's actually turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Similarly, the ancient Bible writers, these inspired writers, also gave us this lesson. Look what they say here. Verse 8, Noah, uh, Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, it turns out that in Hebrew, if you take the name Noah and turn it backwards, these two Hebrew letters, hen, literally mean grace. So right here, the inspired writers are telling us that we should be looking for the grace of God. So Noah's name is a signal throughout this text and this story that we should be looking to how God brings rest and comfort to the world and how his grace attends those who are on his covenant path. Those really are the key messages that we should be looking for. There are other gospel principles, and instead of taking our time debating the so-called science, geology, religion, which is not why God preserved this story. He wasn't trying to answer geological questions. He was trying to message to his people something about him and about them. It's all about his characteristics and the characteristics that we should aspire to if we're on the covenant path. It's beautiful. Now, you'll notice in verse 18, the opposite of everything Taylor just got through talking about, it's this, this foil to Noah, which is the people's response. Look at verse 18. In those days there were giants on the earth, and they sought Noah to take away his life, 
but the Lord was with Noah, and the power of the Lord was upon him. It's interesting that they're living in a day when there's apparently not a lot of religious freedom. I mean, he, he's, he's preaching this, and instead of just uh, ignoring him or sidelining him or stiff-arming him, they're actually wanting to kill him because of, of what he's saying and how he's, he's uh, following the, the Lord's directions here. But look at verse 19. So we've got the problem in 18, which, by the way, most of you watching this today, you're probably not thinking to yourself, yep, I know exactly what it's like to be Noah. To, to, the minute I leave my house, I, people are trying to kill me because of my belief. That's probably not the case for most of you watching this. And yet, most of you watching this do live in a world that is not very friendly to your, to your devotion to God and doesn't applaud you for, for trying to, to be faithful on the covenant path to live your religion. Look at verse 19. So the problem is in verse 18. Let's look at the solution. And the Lord ordained Noah after his own order and commanded him that he should go forth and declare his gospel unto the children of man, even as it was given unto Enoch. You'll notice, you'll notice some lessons here. God did not say, oh, Noah, this is hard. Uh, This is making you kind of unpopular. This is is putting your life in danger. tell you what, we're, we're not going to make you do that anymore. We're going we're gonna to let you have a break here. God isn't in the business of, of trying to make our life as smooth sailing, pain-free, and popular as absolutely possible. That, that doesn't seem to be the scriptural pattern. It seems that when he has a job to be done, he gives it, and whether or not that's a popular job for that prophet or for those people, that's that's not part of of the equation of heaven. That's not what – it doesn't seem to be God's purpose. You see, God is trying to help us become more like him and in the process more like his son, Jesus Christ. And if you look at the Savior's life as a pattern, it wasn't exactly a life filled with public popularity at all times and in all things and all places that he found himself, and yet, he continued to move forward and do God's will up until the very end when he could finally say, it is finished. That's what our goal is for for us individually and for us collectively is that we can persevere with the help of the Lord. It's the Lord who ordained Noah and it's the Lord who's appointed us in our individual capacities wherever you may live to be able to accomplish his purposes in, in the ways that he has ordained. Look at verse 20. It came to pass that Noah called upon the children of men that they should repent, but they hearkened not unto his words. Mark that, because we're going to see the contrast with Noah a little bit later when we get into Genesis 6 and 7. They hearkened not unto his words. And then they come and they make all of their big statement to him of, look, we're not doing anything egregiously terrible. We're we're good people. We're, we're marrying. We're having children. We're we're living life. It's all good. And notice they self-identify in verse 21. Behold, we are the sons of God. We already learned earlier, ultimately it's only God who gives that designation, and it's based on faithfulness. 
So if you give yourself a false designation, you may act falsely. But if you actually let God truly identify who you are, then you can walk truly. Wonderful. So did you notice something at the bottom of verse 20 compared to the bottom of verse 21? It says, but they hearkened not unto his words. And then at the bottom of verse 21, and they hearkened not unto the words of Noah. That's significant. They're not listening to the words of the living prophet. Why? What are the reasons? I don't know all the – they don't give all the reasons, but I think it's pretty clear here that they think they're smarter than Noah, they think they're probably doing things the right way and Noah's misinformed, Noah's the bad guy in this case, in their mind, and in the process they're slowly cutting themselves off from the power that God was willing to give them and the salvation and the grace and the rest and the comfort. They're, they're slowly cutting themselves off by that because they think they're smarter than God's prophet. I, I don't know about you, but when I sing, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these latter days, I don't just think of the prophet Joseph Smith or past prophets, I think of the current prophet and how grateful I am to have 15 prophets, seers, and revelators to guide us in these latter days and to give us the directions that we need today from heaven to move forward to the best of our ability on the covenant path, both individually and collectively as a whole group. Now look at the description in verse 22. This one, th this verse is one of the most sobering verses in the entire story. It says, and God saw that the wickedness of men had become great in the earth. Now notice the qualifying words here. And every man, what's that percentage? 100%. Was lifted up in the imagination of the thoughts of his heart, being only evil continually. So do you notice if you, if you cut yourself off from God's words that come through scriptures and from the living prophets, what are you left with? You're left with imagination. The, the imagination of the thoughts of his heart, and it's very easy to have those imaginations and those thoughts and those desires, those appetites, those passions, those feelings, it's very easy to have those turn you downward, away from God and into pleasure-seeking, power-seeking, uh, worldly kinds of appetites being fed and filled. Self-aggrandizement, putting other people down, acquiring power for your own purposes. What's interesting is that even though God actually has to wipe the slate clean of creation with the flood, kind of start over Noah's a new Adam, we see in the Babylon story, the Tower of Babel, excuse me, the Tower of Babel story, this is repeated. They have this wild imagination that they're going to build their way up into heaven. And it's just like, Humans don't seem to ever get it. Our fallen nature sometimes is such heavy gravity to pull us down from the higher levels of God and, and following his word. Amazing. Now, uh, you'll notice this pattern in the, the scriptural story as it comes out. It's not – it doesn't just give you um, all of the bad at once. You'll notice it's giving you a problem then it's giving you God's solution, then it's giving you the people's response, which leads to a deeper problem, which then leads to God's solution, and then the people's response. It's, it keeps bouncing back and forth. So we just got the, the terrible description of what the earth was like at the time of Noah in verse 21 and 22, 
Now look at 23 and 24. And it came to pass that Noah continued his preaching unto the people. You'll notice God didn't say, okay, the, the gospel that I gave to Adam and to Enoch, uh, it, that's not working. So try, let's, let's try, try something gospel. different. Let's <laughs> yeah. teach a new gospel. <laughs> He's not doing that. And brothers and sisters, you and I live in a world today in the 21st century that I think in some ways we could read back in verse 22 and say, yeah, we're struggling collectively as a, as a, as a world with wickedness, with everyone being lifted up in the imagination of their th thoughts, and some of those are only continual, continually evil. We could say, hmm, we can relate to some of this struggle, so what is the solution? Verse 23, he continued his preaching, saying, hearken and give heed unto my words, and what are the words? Believe and repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even as our fathers, and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost, that ye may have all things made manifest. And if you do not this, the floods will come in upon you. Nevertheless, they hearkened not." There it is again, they hearkened not. But did you notice the message? Faith, the belief, the repentance, the baptism, and did you, did you catch it? We're, we're back, I don't know, 2300, 2400 years before Christ is going to be born, and what are they being baptized in? The name of Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith taught that even Adam was baptized, and now Noah is preaching this baptism. It's not a new ordinance that was introduced by John the Baptist in the, the first century. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ seems to have always been and if you read section 138, what the spirits in prison are being taught by the missionaries from Spirit Paradise, they're being taught these same things, faith in the Lord, repentance, baptism by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ, and the gift of the Holy Ghost being given in that ordinance of confirmation. Uh, it's the same message, it's the same solution whether you're living or whether you're dead, whether you're back in the 3rd century BC or in the 21st century AD, it's the same message. We have to believe in Christ, we have to repent of our sins, get baptized, and get the gift of the Holy Ghost, and then stay on that covenant path because it's guaranteed not to be a smooth, level uh, sidewalk with a nice guardrail protecting us from all opposition, accident, and harm along the way. There are going to be struggles on this path. So this word believe is significant. The Hebrew would be the word uh, related to the word amen. When we say amen, it literally is a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means to believe or to trust or to be faithful. So when God tells us to believe, he's actually saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith in me. I want you to be faithful. And we've talked about covenantal faithfulness, and we'll see just here in a minute that Noah himself had been covenantally loyal and faithful to God. So if you wonder, what could I do in my life to be faithful or loyal, to show that I trust God, I believe, you could repent, get baptized, or if you've been baptized, partake of the sacrament purposely every week and declare at the end of that sacrament prayer, amen, I trust God that he can save me and I 
choose that I want to be faithful to him. There's so many ways that we can show our belief. We can love our neighbors. We can take time to listen and empathize with those who are hurting. We can take time to fix the problems that we have caused other people, right? That's called repentance. Or to fix the problems people have caused us. That's called forgiveness. There's many ways that we can show belief. It's beautiful. Now, look at verse 25. And it repented Noah, and his heart was pained that the Lord had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at the heart. Now, most of you listening to that would, would think, okay, this is just a, a prophet's lament. He's, he's a little bit frustrated. I mean, he's, if we take it literally again at his word, 120 years of preaching this to the people and they, they just refuse to obey, and three times there it told us that they hearken not. And we think Ammon's 14-year mission was a long mission. <laughs> My goodness. So it repented Noah that God had created the, the, the earth and man on the earth. Just for contrast, the, the power of the Joseph Smith translation here, if you read that equivalent verse over in Genesis chapter 6, it says this, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart, which <clears throat> if you take that King James language, that, that particular translation at face value, take it literally, it sounds like God's up in heaven scratching his head saying, oh, I, I messed up. I gotta confess my sins. I, I shouldn't have created this earth. It, it, it was a blunder. It, it's a failed experiment. Versus the Lord repenting for having made man on the earth and grieving in his heart, Joseph Smith changes it to it repented Noah that God had done this. It's brilliant. Joseph Smith did not know Hebrew when he did this. Any guesses to what the underlying word in Hebrew is here that is used for repentance? It's a variant of the name Noah. So there's a wordplay going on here that it literally actually means Noah comfort himself. He kind of felt sorry but was still able to comfort himself in the fact that the world is not where it should be. So again, the inspired writers, and here Joseph Smith is getting inspiration about how this originally should have read, that there really is an, a, a, there's a wordplay going on in Hebrew that Noah, it means to comfort, and when you do it in the intensive form, it actually means to repent, to get to a place of comfort through repentance. Beautiful. That's kind of cool how... That's amazing. And look, look at verse 26, to tie into that, 26 and 27, the Lord said, I will destroy man. Keep in mind, it was Noah who is, is feeling this, this sadness that God has created man and the earth, and the Lord's response is, I will destroy man whom I have created from off the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping things and the fowl of the air. For it repented Noah that I have created them and that I have made them, and he hath called upon me, for they have sought his life. So he's pled with me, and, and God listened to his prophet, and verse 27, and thus Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, for Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation, and he walked with God, as did also his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So th these are really important words. We often read this, we're like, oh, he was perfect. He never created, never had a mistake. So let me just erase this and add some other covenantal terms. It turns out all of these words that we find here all have a covenantal connection. 
in the Old Testament, each of these words has to do with being covenantally loyal to God. So when they use the word perfect in the Bible, it's actually not about this person's never made a mistake. It means that they have been loyal to God. Just means, again, they've been faithfully loyal to God. Walking with God means you have been loyal with them. And so you can see for 120 years, Noah was very loyal to God to teach the truth in the face of difficulty. And because of that, we have this description of what Noah is, what kind of man he is. He was a just man, meaning he'd been loyal to God by living and teaching the message. He was perfect in his generation, again, meaning he had been fully loyal to God. And this is one of the meanings of the word perfect, that we can be loyal to God. And again, if you want to achieve perfection, it only comes through Jesus Christ, but you can be covenantally perfect in the sense of regularly participating in the sacrament and ongoingly showing that you are covenantally loyal and faithful to God. So these, these words are all really significant. You should mark them, and as you're reading the Old Testament and other parts of Scripture, look for these words, perfect and, perfect and just and walk, and just know that often they're dealing with the covenantal loyalty that God needs from his people. That's wonderful. Now, as we shift into the last few verses of chapter 8, You'll notice the conclusion to, to the Joseph Smith translation that we, we have contained, self-contained here in the Pearl of Great Price. It says, the earth was corrupt before God and it was filled with violence. Now, we've seen in other places in Scripture where the prophecies regarding the Lord's second coming will use sometimes phrases like, as it was in the days of Noah, it, it will be in the last days. This idea of, of violence, corruption, verse 29, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence, and behold, I will destroy all flesh from off the earth. Some have wondered why God would, would be so cruel, is how they'll put it. Why, why would he do that? Why would he destroy them? Is it possible, you, you've probably heard this concept from a couple of, of our past church leaders, this idea that would it really be merciful for God to continue to send spirit children down to the earth to be born into, into that setting where basically they, they really don't have a chance to grow up and, and discover the gospel and live it uh, or stay on the covenant path? So that's one way that, that this um, experience has been interpreted is it's, it's a great act of mercy to give a fresh start, to, to have a new beginning, which, by the way, in a Hebrew context, uh, you have they, – they love numbers, right? And so seven is a complete whole perfect number. Uh, you've got the seven days of creation, it's that complete cycle, it's done, it's finished, it's lacking nothing at that point, right? Well then, eight becomes a beautiful symbol for a new beginning, a fresh start, a new look. Uh, I love the fact that God in the latter days has established that it's at eight years old, 
that we baptize our children to give them a new beginning. They have seven years where, for all intents and purposes, they, they can practice. Uh, they can learn early in life the principles of repentance and forgiveness when they've, when they've basically got a, a fresh – or a free pass, rather, and then at age eight we give them a new beginning. Uh, isn't it a beautiful symbol that as we now jump into the, the actual flood story, it's eight people that the scriptures list as being saved and that are going to provide that new beginning for all of humanity. It's Noah and his wife. We know her name is Joan, Joan of Ark. Don't write that down. That was, that was a very feeble attempt at humor. We don't know Noah's wife's name. And then we know his three sons and their wives. So it's a total of eight people giving us this new beginning to, to life. So automatically, you and I don't have to stay forced into just reading a story from the third century BC. We want to understand it to the best of our ability back then, but we can pull it forward in time and say, hey, there's value in me and you today understanding these principles of God providing us with a new beginning. And as Taylor's already mentioned, if you've already been baptized, keep in mind, in the, in the early days of the church, they would often get rebaptized for a variety of reasons. There, there are people who were baptized multiple times. You could be baptized into a united order in a, in a particular location. Um, you, you would get rebaptized at times if you had left the church without getting excommunicated, now you've come back, you, you want to recommit. Um, President Brigham Young asked a whole group of them to get rebaptized on one occasion, kind of a, a recommitment. Well, you and I get that opportunity without going into the baptismal font every Sunday. We have an opportunity at the close of another seven-day cycle of the week, we get a new beginning on that eighth day, which then becomes day one of the new cycle. I can start fresh. I don't have to stay bound to the things listed in 28, 29, 30, or back in 21 and 22 in my own life. Uh, not looking at other people's and the world's uh, problems at large, but my problems, the struggles I'm facing. It's a beautiful opportunity for us to, to take these scriptures a little more personally this week. Let me add a little bit more to this about um, actually how numbers work in the Bible. Uh, they're actually confusing, and it seems like they're not always accurate to what we would expect. But it turns out the ancient people seem to be working on a base 60 counting system. The technical term is sizagesimal. Um, most of us today use a base 10. You got 10 fingers, and it goes 10, 100, 1,000. Anciently, it was 60, 120, all up to 360 and beyond. And it's interesting how they would do the counting, and this kind of ties into the 120 years that Noah was preaching. You might notice uh, your fingers, you got three segments on each finger. And if you use your thumb as a pointer, you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. It's interesting. So that's 12. Do that again 24, 36, 48, 60. You can get to 60, you can count to 60 on just two hands. Very, very powerful. So you'll notice that often you'll find repetitions of numbers related to 60 or 120. For example, the fact that 
Noah preaches for 120 years might in part be related to the sesagesimal system that it's three times 40. And in the numbering system, 40 means just a really a long, long time. time. I mean, Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, the Israelites for 40 years. And maybe it was exactly 40 days and 40 years. We don't know, but the scriptures seem to use 40 to symbolize a long time. Well, what if you have a long time 40 times 3? 40, 40, 40 becomes superlatively a long, long time. So 120. Yeah. So Noah may have been preaching for 120 years. He may have been preaching longer or less, just a really long time. But even notice that you get to 360 with this counting method, which is almost the number of days in the year. It's the number of degrees in a circle. So it actually is a very powerful way to actually order the world through numbers. Now, I have to say that the numbers in the Bible don't always co cohere to this. But you'll see some of this going on that what we have in these stories are often symbols that are trying to convey these doctrinal principles, as, as Tyler's talking about, that God has these new beginnings. Or maybe you'll spend 40 days of your life, quote-unquote, wandering the wilderness, struggling with some difficulty before you enter into the promised land, eight of a new beginning, and maybe you're like Moses, who gets to live 120 years, just like Noah preached for 120 years. And again, maybe Noah, Moses really lived 120 years, or maybe he, he had three long periods of life, one in Egypt, 40 years, 40 years out in the, with, in the Medina, um, and then 40 years leading the Israelites into the Promised Land. So I share that perspective because sometimes when we read the Bible, which is like entering into a foreign country, the numbers can be a little overwhelming and confuse us. And our recommendation is try not to get too fixated on that, and let's try to stay focused on the principles that God is trying to invite us back into his presence and to use the stories of past people and we can learn from their choices. What were the consequences of those who were faithful? Those who weren't faithful, what were the consequences? And we can learn vicariously to choose well. Beautiful. Now, let's jump into Moses, chapter 6. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. Again, if you want to make a little line there, you can. This is the beginning of the part that is not included in Moses, chapter 8. So it begins by saying, Make thee an ark of gopher wood, room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. So we're getting this, this description of we want the ark to be waterproof. We're going to pitch it on the outside and on the inside with this pitch. And quite frankly, we could, we could get all excited about the scientific reasoning and rationale for why we would use tar on the inside and the outside and what the length would be and reconstruct it. And that would be fun for some people, but in my mind, I want to keep saying, what in the world is God trying to teach us? Because keep in mind, the, these scriptures were given very, very anciently to a, to a people originally for a particular reason, but God has preserved them. They've come down to us today. So while they were given to those people back then in antiquity and they were for them then, they are also for us today. And so we have to keep asking the question, what did God intend for us to get from these stories? I don't know that he intended for us to have it be a handbook, like you had said, on geology, archaeology, anthropology, linguistics. Or how and, to build boats. Or how to build the ideal art. Or debate, like, how many animals could you fit in a boat? I, God is basically just saying, there's a plan here to save people. That's right. And there's a bunch of details, but if we just step back and say, 
God actually has a plan to save his faithful people. Absolutely. And so there's little details, but guess what? The details will be different for you and for me today because the circumstances are different. And so he might give you specific things for how you can get into the good boat Zion or help build it and be saved. And we probably don't have to bring a lot of tar and pitch. So look at verse uh, 15. He gives the length and the breadth and the height. Verse 16, a window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit thou shalt finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. And then he describes a lower, second, and third stories inside of it. Those of you who like marking your, your scriptures physically, you, you could make a little note there in chapter 16. Verse 16. Or verse 16, footnote A, where it mentions the window. You'll notice the Hebrew word down there, sohar. Am I pronouncing that okay? Well, I'm not an ancient Hebrew, but it sohar. sounds good to me. Some rabbis believed it was a precious stone that shone in the ark. Fascinating, because if you look at the timing here, you get Noah and the flood, and then you get the next story in chapter 11 that we're going to finish today's episode with in the, the Tower of Babel story, and it's at the Tower of Babel where you get your first connection over to the New World with the Book of Mormon people, the Jaredites. And what does the brother of Jared end up doing to fix his light problem when the Lord told him, what, what would thou have me do that you'll have light in your vessels? And he had fashioned those smooth stones and then asked God to touch them. Is it possible that a few, well, I don't know exactly how long it is, a few hundred years before the brother of Jared, Noah is kind of the, the big prophet of his dispensation, stands at the head of that dispensation, is it possible that he's been reading his scriptures, knows the stories, harkens back to what Noah did? So to solve problems that the brother of Jared is facing, he looks to the prophet and looks to the solutions that God has already provided through his prophet and then follows the prophet and finds light and, and life in his own struggles there in the barges a few hundred years removed from this experience. Those bright, shining stones touched by God perhaps is what this window refers to in verse 16, and all of us have access to something metaphorically the same. It's the Spirit of God, the gifts of the Spirit, and I actually find it significant that Joseph Smith brought forth Revelation and the Book of Mormon by bright, shining stones that offer us salvation, just like God save people in the time of Noah through what this may be, a bright shining stone, and the brother of Jared and his people. I just love how God just peppers his storyline with these themes that continue to come out, which is about, if you follow me, you will have light, and that will bring you salvation. It's beautiful. How, how simple a uh, technique God uses these, these stones, a farm boy, um, simple people to do his work um, and to carry it forth into the into the world. I, I love it. By small and simple things are great things brought to pass. I've, I heard that was an important quote yeah, from somewhere. I think Alma 37 <laughs> might agree with you on that. Now, go with verse 18. But with thee will I establish my covenant and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee." There's the eight that are mentioned. Look at the Joseph Smith translation in your footnote there, footnote 18a. 
but with thee will I establish my covenant, even as I have sworn unto thy father Enoch, that of thy posterity shall come all nations, and then he finishes with, and thou shalt come into the ark. So it's this beautiful carrying on of a promise that God has given to Enoch, and we know that God gave that promise to Adam and Eve before, and it, it keeps getting passed down. It keeps getting renewed. It keeps experiencing this new beginning with each dispensation, or in some cases each generation, that God is saying, yeah, I promised this to, to your fathers before, and that's important, and that'll help you, that'll bless you, but even more important, I'm giving it to you today. And I think that the message for me is I love looking at the genealogy pedig pedigree charts for me and my wife and consequently for our children and seeing the, the legacy of faith and all the covenants and the promises that have been made up through there and then back into the scriptures to, the, to these great people of old, but brothers and sisters, those promises given to these people back then or even to people in my genealogy pedigree chart, they, they only can bless me so much until I make them my promises as well, till I claim them like Noah was seeking after them, and next week like Abraham is going to seek after them. There's, there's power in not sitting back and waiting for, for these covenants to come and hit us over the head, but rather go and seek them, to seek the Lord early and often and do our best to, to find connections to those covenants. Now, let's finish this chapter with verse 22, something that is, is powerful in my mind. It's so simple that it's easy to overlook, but it's back to these small and simple things that great things are brought to pass. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. Did you notice? Thus did Noah. Noah did all that God had commanded him, so did he. So it repeats it. God makes the command and he did it. He does it. It's not like the people, in contrast back there in Moses chapter 8 where on three occasions it says, and they hearkened not unto his word. They didn't listen to him. They didn't obey. They didn't follow, whereas Noah did. Now, check out chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. I don't know. I don't think the, that Moses has a problem repeating himself as, as this story is being written down. I think there's an emphasis being added to this idea of, of obedience to God, that we've got to trust him and do according to the things which, which he has commanded us. And now, back to Taylor's numbering thing, verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. They love the, the nice round numbers, the, the ability to encapsulate a big passage of time in something fairly round. Well, today we might say he's a century old. So in a sisagesimal system where it's like base 60, 600 would be that nice round number. We're not saying Noah wasn't 600 years old. We're just saying that the Bible writers may have been using these numbering systems to kind of convey something about his how old he was, that it just registers like today we say, that person's a century old, that's a hundred years. hundred years is a long time for us. Six hundred we don't really compute. Back then, it did compute for them. You even see the 40, right? Forty days it rains, 
Now, maybe it really rained for 40 days. I've lived in places where that's happened, but it also just may mean a very long time, which in the scriptures, 40 symbolizes a really long time. That's right. You'll notice that the flood comes, they, they're in the ark, chapter 7 talks about two and two of all flesh, but it's later on where you get the, the description of the seven clean animals, not two, because we're going to perform sacrifices when the, when the right. ark lands, and that's a little problematic if, uh, if yeah. we've only got two. Right. So, uh, verse 17, the flood was forty days, as Taylor said, upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. The waters prevailed and, in, and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. You look at verse 24, it prevails upon the earth, the waters, for 150 days. Again, if you do that sisegesimal counting, 30, 60, 90, 120, 150. It's again, it's, a, it's, it's another 30-based number. number. So then as we're coming to the end of that experience, he sends forth the raven in chapter 8, verse 7, and then the dove in verse 9, and the dove comes back, and then another seven days he sends out the dove, and this time she had an olive leaf plucked off in her beak in verse 11. You guys remember what Noah's name means? It means rest. And actually, if you were reading this in the Hebrew, you would actually find Noah's name repeated a number of places where it's actually not referring to him, but it's actually using the word rest. For example, the ark rests on the mountaintop. When he sends out the bird, it at first couldn't find a place to rest its foot. So the theme is being purposely baked into the, to the literary format of the text that it's about rest, that God will bring rest. And if you stay on God's covenant path, eventually the floodwaters of the suffering of your life will recede and you will be at rest. That is actually everything about what Noah's name means. And even though we know the story happened, for us today the symbolism is we're all like a Noah looking to find our rest in the Lord. Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar as he's now off the, uh, off the ark. You'll notice the footnote there takes you to Genesis 9, 4 through 6 in the appendix. That happens to be the very first entry of the, the larger Joseph Smith translation adjustments in the back, chapter 9, verse 4 through 6. Notice the adjustment that, that Joseph adds here. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar and gave thanks unto the Lord and rejoiced in his heart. And the Lord spake unto Noah and he blessed him. And Noah smelled a sweet savour and he said in his heart, I will call on the name of the Lord that he will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of the man's heart is evil from his youth, and that he will not again smite any more every living thing as he hath done while the earth remaineth. That's a pretty big promise, which now leads us over into chapter 9 where you get God blessing Noah and his sons, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. You'll notice that was the very first command given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it's still in force today, 
the same command that had been given in the beginning and here at this new beginning, and it's given at a new beginning of a new family unit every time a man and a woman kneel across the altar in the temples of our God. I love that idea of we need family to be able to fulfill God's plan for us. And again, we've talked about this before, we realize not everybody has that opportunity or not everybody gets that ideal. Some people have a real situation in their life that prevents that ideal from occurring, and we understand that. With God, all things will be made right in the end. Now, God gives them a sign in, in verse 10 through 16 of the rainbow being established as a sign of that covenant that he won't uh, – well, let's just read verse 12. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. So it's this ongoing sign. I do set my bow in the cloud, cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And he promises that he will not uh, destroy all flesh anymore in the bottom of verse 15. I love this word token. Listen to the words at least in English, the, the root word for token comes from the same word where we get to teach, to show, to explain. So Jesus, or God, as a great teacher, has an ongoing teaching moment, an object lesson that is there after every – anytime it rains or a mist, it's his reminder, his teaching object lesson that he made this covenant to Noah and all of Noah's posterity, which includes all of us, that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And God holds to his promises. So I just love how God teaches us, not just in word, but also visually with the world around us that he created. Powerful. Now, as, as they move out from there, um, verse 19, these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread." So our biblical account talks about Shem, Japheth, and Ham spreading out and uh, multiplying and replenishing the earth. Now, that brings us to chapter 11, our last chapter for today. This contains the story of the great tower that we often refer to as the Tower of Babel. Uh, it's, it's the next story after the flood, so you've got these people, notice verse 1, the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and keep in mind, we're getting, we're getting a parallel account of this story from Genesis 11 over in Ether chapter 1 in the Book of Mormon because that's where Jared and the brother of Jared and their families are rooted into our biblical narrative. Verse 2 says, It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And so then they say, hey, let's, let's make brick and burn them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And so verse 4 says, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Which is so ironic that they don't – they want a name that is going to unify them lest they be scattered 
And the grand irony is it's from that group that there is a large group of people that's going to be scattered upon the whole face of the earth. These these Jaredites are going to to leave and and literally be scattered in a really good way to the Promised Land. Now, most depictions of the Tower of Babel show this, you know, this big tower structure that that they're trying like as if you're building this big tower to go to heaven, and it could be that way. It could be. I don't know. I just know from a lot of research that's been done back in Mesopotamia, back in antiquity, uh, one of our colleagues, uh, George Pierce and his wife Crystal Pierce, have done a lot of uh, research into this time period, and they've found, uh, I think it's over two dozen examples of towers and temple-like structures in, Meso in ancient Mesopotamia where they start seeing some of the things that are written about how they were used and what the people's intent with the towers were, and as they've done this research, it seems that it's not as much that they're trying to physically climb up to heaven as much as they're building tiers of large structures, and on the top, however tall your your temple, your they're called ziggurat. However tall your ziggurat is, or your tower, your temple is, it's in this uppermost one where you place things like a bed, a golden table. You provide a place where the gods are going to f be able to have their their needs met when they come down to the earth to visit men, and the the underworld. It's kind of this connecting point for them, but the whole point that you get in the Book of Mormon with the, the brother of Jared and Jared and the people leaving because of, of the wickedness, the, the, the beautiful insight, one of the many beautiful insights I've, I've gained from George and Crystal's piece is this idea that these people were saying God is not all-powerful, God is not sovereign, and we're going to provide things for God. We're going to make God come to become like us, which is such a fascinating switch from what our temples today are intending to do, which is create these connecting points for us to come and learn of God. Here, to become like him rather than having God become like us, it's, no, I need to learn God's language. I need to see things from God's perspective, not the other way around, which, which is this struggle at the Tower of Babel, is they're, they're trying to, to bring God down to our level rather than what we try to do in the house of the Lord, which is bring us closer and closer and closer to God's level, to learn his language, and then as we go out into the world to be able to share that light and goodness with people around us. Those are great insights. You are familiar with these terms, Bab El and Bab Elan. They're both interrelated. Bab means gate, and El means God. Babylon actually means the gate of the gods. So this is a gateway for humans to get access to the gods who come down and interact with them. And Babylon was essentially a, a temple city full of lots of temples to lots of different pagan deities.
And it's not like Genesis 11 is telling us, well, we should aspire, you know, to these types of temples. It's simply this name that people thought they could access to God. I also point out some interesting things. Bible writers are absolutely inspired by the way they construct the text. Genesis 11 is the end of one portion of the, of the Bible. Genesis 12 begins, and the turning point is Genesis 11 and 12. These, these two chapters are very interesting. If you compare them, one chapter focuses on a large mass of unnamed people who want to cape, create a name for themselves that will endure forever. And yet in Genesis 12, you have one man who God appoints and says, I will make your name great. And so if you read these two stories for comparative and contrastive purposes, it's very instructive. Are we going to be like the people of Babylon trying to make God like us and therefore build ourselves monuments that are supposed to last the ages so our name will endure forever? Or do we let God give us a name that endures forever? And the story of Abraham, which we'll be getting to in the upcoming weeks, is all about how God will guide people to have an everlasting name. And Abraham is just a powerful example of it. And we all can be, as children of Abraham, like him, to get a name that will endure forever. That's one of the key insights we have in comparing these two chapters that are literally put back to back, I think in part for this very purpose. For this purpose, yeah. So as we come to the, the conclusion of this particular episode, uh, our prayer is that, that uh, the Holy Ghost is able to teach each individual whatever lesson is needed for, for your situation, whether you're on an ark in a serious storm, the likes of which you've never known before, or whether you feel like you're in a society like Jared and his brother and their families were, where it feels like everything's being done for the wrong reasons and, and you're struggling to find your place, whatever it may be, can we just end by saying, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these latter days, but it doesn't do us any good to have a prophet if we don't listen, if we don't hearken, if we don't pay attention to what's being said and do our very best to seek heaven's aid in following those directions that come to us. If, if we really think that there are others smarter than the prophets, whether that be other people or ourselves, then we're probably not going to be very much different than some of the people we've read about here who our life may not end – is for sure not going to end in a flood of water, but it might end in a flood of discouragement or disappointment or failed hopes and dreams because we created a God after our own image and then he didn't meet those, those expectations and he didn't come down and speak our language because we didn't spend the time to learn his and to come to the safety of his house or onto the safety of his boat. So as we move forward into the rest of this year, may the Lord's blessings be with us to help us stay on the good ship Zion and to come to his house is our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.